This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. No Mai Toti Mai to Mahika Kai Narratives, a programme that brings researchers, policy makers, and those elbow deep in their practice together to discuss all areas related to impacting on and providing services to Mahika Kai. Welcome to Mahika Kai Narratives with Dion Payne. Our corridor today is with Dr. Machu Payne. Machu is of Kaitahu, Ngati Kinohaku, Ngati Manihapoto, and Ngati Mutunga descent. He lives in Kokorarata, Port Levy, and is currently the chair of Terunanga or Kokorarata. Machu is also a director of Kokorarata Development Company in Horomaka Limited and director of Hakarido Limited. More importantly, he is an avid practitioner of Mahikakai which includes kaimoana, marakai, mōkehi and tuna. Matu nei mihi mahana ki akwe, no mai ki tēnei hōtaka, ka pūrākau mahikakai. Tēnā koe, Dion. Thank you for having me today. Mihi ana ki akwe. So Matu, you've been a practitioner of mahikakai for many years. I've known you now for 20 years, and when I met you, you were definitely a practitioner then. Tell us about how you became involved in mahikakai. Uh, well, for me, it was about learning from my nanny and started with very simple beginnings um, in her backyard of a quarter-acre garden in Christchurch. Um, I remember being about five years old when she would take me out to plant radishes in the garden. And, yeah, radishes were probably the best thing to start a young boy on because they grow fast. Uh, but the thing my nanny said to me from a very early time in growing those radishes was that I had a green thumb. And I thought that was pretty cool because I looked at my thumb and it wasn't the colour green, but I had this magical green thumb that would allow me to grow things where not everybody had them, she said. So that was my first real memory of being involved in a, a mahika kai activity. But me and my green thumb decided this would be a good kaupapa to follow. So was that back in Kokorarata or was that somewhere else? Uh, it was actually at 90 Rahira Street in Christchurch. Okay. Um, that was where my nanny lived when we moved back from Australia. And probably three, four more years later, we started going back to Kokorarata. And there was where I started to see the other parts of Mahikakai, uh, particularly in relation to our moana, our, our ocean there. And um, we often tell people there's no kaimoana <laughs> in our water, we send them over to Pigeon Bay. But watching my nanny, her siblings, her cousins, all of whom practised mahika kai for their daily kai. So explain to us what Kokorarata looks like, because I can imagine there are a great many people that have never actually been there. But um, we, you know, we live there, and it's absolutely gorgeous. But just from a bird's eye view, could you explain the bay of Kokorarata? Yeah, Kokorarata is a harbour which is about 14 kilometres long. Um, I understand it to be, and it's north-facing. So when we get the nor'west wind, Te Haukai Takata, it blows right up the harbour. And similarly, when Te Pūnui Otoka, the southern wind comes from the south, it blows right up and chills our bones from the south. Um, it has incredibly high mountains on both sides, 
Um, at the head of the harbour is our mountain, Te Ahupatiki, and our river, Kokorarata, runs right through the pa where we live today. Um, in the middle of our harbour, we've got a beautiful island that we see when you come around the corner, um, whose name is Horomaka, and we have another smaller island, Pukerauaruhe, that is further out towards the heads. And our marae, that's there, Tutehuarewa, is the, the base for our hapu of Kaitu Tehuarewa and Katihuikai. Um, we have approximately two streetlights in our entire community. We got Tar Seal in 1997, and our wharf has been there since the early 1900s. So that's about the extent of our metropolis. We have a population in the summer of about 600 people, in the winter, three to 400 is an estimation. So shape-wise, it's not too dissimilar from sort of a horseshoe with a narrow neck? If you look at a horseshoe <laughs> with a narrow neck, absolutely, it looks well, like that. I was actually thinking of a tonsil, but you know. Well, you could call it a tonsil too. I like to think of more uh, more attractive things to describe my Sorry. homeland as. Sorry. But if you can imagine a fjord, a picture of a fjord, and um, without the the original forestry that used to stand there, that was all clear felled in the 1850s. But it's um, in our belief, it was part of the the whale uh, pathways that would travel between Alpa and Rapanui, out to Easter Island and a lot of the trenches that the whales still follow, which we call the Aramoana, run right past the heads of our harbour. So you were mentioning before, um, after you know, doing some radish planting with your nana in Auhera Street, that you would then go back to Kokorarata and see other mahikakai. So what sort of mahikakai? Well, you don't have it, that's right, you, you take them over to Pigeon Bay. But um, you know, what are some of the things maybe that Kokorarata is known for? Don't, don't elaborate on all the other stuff. <laughs> no, it's okay, because nobody knows actually where things are. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> but um, our pa traditionally was known for pioke. Pioke is uh, the rig, small sand sharks. And they run in abundance in all of our harbours around Horomaka, Banks Peninsula, uh, between November and March every year. Uh, the mothers will come in to um, give birth to their babies, and after that happens is when they're in huge numbers to be harvested. And so our people would, and still do, catch pioke in, in large numbers. Um, they're beautiful, fresh, just fried with a little bit of butter, or they can be uh, dried into the old-style chewing gum um, that was then bartered with other hapu. So pioke was uh, really well known in our bay. Kutai, our mussels, are also very well known and plentiful. Um, but our people would also go out and fish hapuku, um, the groper. And the groper grounds are still known um, by the families, but we don't frequent them as often as we'd like to. Um, but the groper would be dried, and that would be called maraki. And there's a small mountain up behind uh, our house, which is called Tefata maraki. And that would be the place where the maraki uh, would be stored, but also traded with hapu from Wairewa, and hapu from Akaroa as well. So there was a whole mountain range where the hapu could travel along at shorter time spans than going up and down the hills um, in between the different harbours. So those those were some of the traditional kai that were um, well known within Kokorarata. Um, prior to the deforestation, we were also very plentiful in 
the birds that we would eat. A lot of our place names recall the names of the birds that we would eat. Um, a really good example of that is our mountain which stands above uh, the marae. Um, that mountain's name is Kākānui. Um, the kākā is the red parrot, that rather endangered bird we have <laughs> in our, our communities now. Um, but Kākānui means so many or plentiful kākā. And the kākā was like our KFC, um, our Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> or Kentucky Fried Kākā. Mm -hmm. And this mountain was given this name because of the abundance of kākā that would be on there. So what was the tree, the native trees, do you think that, that the kākā would have been uh, domiciled in? That's a really good question. A lot of the um, trees that we have in the bush there now is all secondary growth. So a lot of the old trees that we remembered being the rākau pua, or the birding trees, uh, would likely have been things like uh, miro, mātai, kahikatea, um, the tāwhai trees, the, the beech trees. And what else do we have up there? The hohere. All of the trees that are renowned within our pa, the kōwhai, was also there and is still there now. Um, the kaikomako uh, were other trees that were known in our place as well. But the kaka was one example of a native bird that we would eat. And hopefully one day there may be an opportunity to rekindle those practices when we've built our numbers. Um, but the other bird that we relied almost exclusively upon during winter was the kereru, or the kukupa, as we knew it. And the mountain beside, the mountain range that runs along from Kākānui is known as Manukuya. Uh, there are some people might translate that as the old lady bird, <laughs> uh, being Manu and Kuya, hmm. which is a, a fair estimation to make, but it's not correct in terms of our stories. Uh, manu is correct in terms of birds, but the ku was the name we called the call of the kereru. Ka kuku te kereru. The kereru would call, and so manukuia means the place where the birds could be heard calling. Manukuia. Um, so that was our sign to know that if we had KFC in Kākānui, we had Burger King along the mountain range, which was our, our kereru. Now, of course, those birds are also protected. Mm -hmm. uh, so our aro, our pursuit amongst our hapu now is to replant our, our areas in native trees to such an extent where the numbers can grow and grow and grow so that in the future our mokopuna may be able to rekindle these mahikakai practices. Our very name puari is dependent upon mahikakai. So the pua for us was the rākau pua the birding trees that individual families or hapu would have rights to take birds from. And ari was the same meaning as marama, or having a clear view of something. So puari, when it comes together, becomes um, easy to see birding trees. And puari was a name also that was brought from, from our pa um, by our chief Huikai's son, Tautahi, when he moved to Christchurch. And so there's a river that runs into the Otakoro, the Avon River, which we know is, I think it's Freeman's Creek. And that was where Totahi and his wife Ricky came to live, um, after they left Kokodarata, of course. And so that's our connection to Christchurch City, is through the names of the landscapes which are so connected to our mahikakai practices. 
and perhaps there were, um, before the trees were felled in Christchurch, similar burning trees that allowed that mahikakai to take place as well. So I wonder, uh, I'm just thinking about, I, I believe it was a great-grandfather that had the mara in Port Levy that would take vegetables into the city. Is that sort of, is there a connection between the gardening that would happen in Kukaranata and the places in Ototahi where uh, there were markets to swap, to buy, to sell food? Was there a, a, a natural connection to that or is that just by happenstance? Oh, there, there's absolutely a, a connection between mahikakai and manakitaka, having hospitality. Um, and there's also a connection between mahikakai, manakitaka and ohaka, which is commerce. And so our our plantations, especially in Kokodarata in the 1860s, probably through to the 1880s, were so um, large or so productive that we had enough to feed ourselves, we had enough to feed our relatives, we had enough to exchange in our kaiho kai system that we took our excess kai and we brought it through from Kokodarata up the Otakoro River to Market Square, which is not far from the town hall um, where it is today. And our people would sell to the local settlers after 1850 when the first ships arrived in, in Littleton Harbour. And um, that was a well-known space um, until such time as the uh, demand for land and demand for the control of the economy prevented that kind of commerce from continuing. So we were so um, invested in providing kai that our whole hapu worked um, in a communal way to produce kai. Well, we gathered fish, uh, we gathered birds, and we shared and we sold that kai. Um, some of our tipuna even bought schooners, the old sailing ships, to enable trade up and down the New Zealand coasts and also to Sydney, um, where there's recorded instances of our people taking kai there. So, yeah, we had petitioned the government at one stage to actually um, help us install a wheat flour mill um, because that was one of the products of demand in those early times. So we were uh, yeah, quite invested in the mahikakai world, not only for customary purposes, to feed ourselves and our families, but for the new emerging economy, which was based upon providing products to other people. So I wonder then, from your perspective, I mean, you've given um, some great examples of different mahikakai. So if you had to define mahikakai, how would you do that? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Many people... I mean, from your perspective, yeah. so not the, not, not the overall definition for the dictionary, but rather just yeah. from the kokorarata perspective, what does mahikakai mean? So you've talked about birding, fishing... You've talked a little bit about planting. Is there any other types of activities or how would you kind of nail this down in the Kokorarata worldview? Yeah. Mahikakai has been defined really well by a lot of our toa and our poa. Um, those definitions have been picked up and enunciated by some of our academics as well and published to that effect. So... All of those descriptions have a place in the understanding of mahikakai. Um, for my purposes, uh, those definitions are important. 
But what Mahika Kai, from my observation, is in danger of becoming is a theoretical subject that is based on antiquated ideas that this was something that our people only did back in the times of contact with early Europeans or before we had electricity and all those kinds of stereotypes that can come forward. So stuck in a very traditional idea that kind of sits prior to the treaty. Yeah, something something you just pull out for a bit of cultural renaissance every now and then. And my my criticism of that thinking is, um, you know, simply kaitehe. It's incorrect. Um, and that can be found in the actual definition. If you break up the word mahikakai, or the term mahikakai, um, mahi, which is the base of mahika, mahi is a word that says work, to work. Um, to actually do something, not sit still. So it's an active. It's an active. Is what it's an action. Yeah. So adding mahika becomes the active of mahi. Mm-hmm. So mahika in its very um, description is an active process. Kai, of course we all know kai, um, is word, is the word for food. So it's the active activities to procure food. Now how do you define that? in a, an environment such as mm-hmm. Te Waipaunamu. And um, for our people right across Te Waipaunamu, um, it depends very much on the environment we live in, the kinds of rivers we can access, the kinds of birds that are on our coast, and the kinds of fish that are in our sea, and foods that occur naturally in our environments. Um, but it's the actual work of getting out there and procuring it um, on a seasonal basis that is the embodiment of mahikakai. Um, anybody can talk about mahikakai, anybody can write about mahikakai, but what's your practice? How are you practicing the theory? And for me, um, that is what I learned from my nanny. She could have sat me down at the kitchen table and says, look, here's a radish. This is how you grow a radish. I'm telling you how to grow a radish, you're welcome. But that wasn't her approach. She didn't even tell me what we were doing. She just said, follow me. Come sit beside me in the garden, you dig this row, this is how you do it, pull out the weeds, take these little things, put them in the garden. And then every day we'd go back, we'd water, and then after about five to seven days, which is about as long as it takes for it to grow, um, it was demonstration through an active process. And only later did I come to realise this was about preparing the mata, planting the seeds, maintaining the mata, watering it, and then coming to harvest time which is a you know, kind of a microcosm, if you like, of a much larger growing season where if we look at a, um, a relation of ours called the kumara, can take up to six months. But the basics of learning how to grow a radish is what prepared me to wait six months from a five-year-old, one-week attention span to a, I won't say how old I am. 40-something. 40-something-year-old. Um, Six-month attention span, which is required for the constant attention of growing kumara, particularly here in the South Island. So I want to get, we're going to talk about uh, your practice with the kumara um, a little bit later on. But I guess what's really important is is that there is a, a certain part or a certain section of academia that might say, that mataraka Māori or mahikakai is purely traditional. What I've really enjoyed is that what I'm hearing from you is that it's not just 
a traditional practice that what you can actually do is that mahikakai can evolve. It can, there, there are ways in which Māori have found new and interesting ways to uh, prepare food, to harvest food, to grow food. So uh, could you elaborate a little bit more on, on why you think it's not just stuck in a, a pre-colonial context? Yeah, I think the first thing I'd like to do is just acknowledge the terminology of mātauraka Māori hmm. and that, from my perspective at least, it's a very new term. Um, and it's written or to, to describe a response to mātauraka or knowledge that isn't inherently Māori in its focus. So Western academia is a good example of um, knowledge or a knowledge system that isn't inherently based within a, an ao Māori, a Māori worldview. So mātauraka Māori in and of itself is a response um, of resistance, if you like, to um, always being forced within one mainstream way of approaching the world of knowledge, of research, of rakaho, um, all of these kinds of uh, approaches to knowledge. So I think when we talk about mahikakai, Acknowledging that mātauraka Māori is a response to Western academia domination. Um, what we're saying is that mahika kai has the right to be what it is. It has the right to evolve. And what mahika kai was in 1840, or even 1835, is not what mahika kai is today, nor will it be in 2035. Um, I don't know how controversial I can get in this <laughs> broadcast, but in 1835, part of Mahikakai was kaitakata, hmm. no, the eating of human flesh. That's well not done. something we do today. No. Um, for a whole range of reasons. But, but in another hundred years, it may be something different. We may not, for example, be able to drink the water from our creeks, which is so topical for our power right now hmm. because our ancestral river is almost drying up this summer. There are several moves around to try and privatise water. And for us, our culture, our mahikakai, is based upon um, access to water in all of its forms. Our fish live in the water. Would you consider, I mean, I'm just thinking through, um, you were just saying that mātauraka Māori is a response to Western academia. Uh, would it be fair to say that even when I was growing up, so... Obviously, I'm older than you. But when I was growing up, um, we, we didn't have that terminology. So if we were, when I would go earling with my grandfather or my father, it wasn't, we're about to go do mahikakai. It was, we are going earling. Whereas the terminology, perhaps, of mahikakai has kind of consumed all the action and put it under a particular terminology. So I think it's interesting that what we, even our word usage has evolved, whereas we would call it tuna, you know, we would call it uh, fishing for shark, we would call it going to get pippies or, or mussels. It's, they were very distinct and defined activities, whereas today it's all mahikakai. Yeah. And, and the Promotion of mahikakai is, is in itself a response. Hmm. So for our people here in Te Waipaunamu, we understood mahikakai um, so strongly that when um, the first land purchase deed, the Kemp's Purchase, was signed in 1848, uh, we insisted on the inclusion of the mahikakai areas in our kaika nohuaka being of continued access to us. So even though 
13 million acres were purportedly sold for 2,000 pounds. Our people were comfortable because in the agreement it would maintain our access to these places that we would gather food and we would stay while we gathered food. So for us there wouldn't have been a huge impact from our worldview. History's shown us a different pathway. Um, so for us we talk about Mahikakai because it became well, not became, it was the core of our economy um, internally within our own people, and it was ripped out. Hmm. So it became for us the point of resistance, and that the very practice of our food gathering activities wasn't self the resistance. And some of our families continue annual harvests of mutton birds, annual harvests of white bait, and other the tuna heke every year at Wairewa and at Waihora. Um, and those things have happened not as an act of resistance, but because the very act of it is a resistance mm. to domination by another kind of um, economy over the top of us. So perhaps then the terminology or the practice of mahikakai is really that safe space to continue to practice those things that are most important to Māori, which is part of that manakitaka, being able to manaki our visitors, our whānau when they come home with kai, that is from our area. So maybe it's not so much a, this is a term for everything, but rather it is that continuous space of manamotu hake that allows us to continue to practice those things. Yeah, I think we need to be just careful in the way we assert um, terms like mahikakai mm. and mātauraka Māori that mm -hmm. we don't romanticise um, what it is in the real world. I uh, must say, the last few weekends, uh, digging weeds out of the potato gardens, very unromantic. <laughs> so. yeah, it's not meant to be romantic like that. I guess the, it really isn't. The caution I would offer is that um, you know, the vast majority of our people through the effects of colonisation mm. have been distanced um, or completely severed from the practice of mahikakai. So what we're doing in response to that is trying to rekindle the practice, mm. the enthusiasm, and if something that we have learned through the COVID lockdowns this year is because so few people are engaged in mahikakai, when pathways to supermarkets are cut off, um, our community, our small community of Kokorata had to scramble to re-establish our māra. And that was a huge lesson for us mm. because we had thought because of our culture and our history and our practices that we were safe. Mm, it was already but the reality over, yeah. was we weren't anticipating yep. um, a lockdown and when it happened our supermarket culture taught us all of a sudden we couldn't get kai so we had to recalibrate and find new strategies to teach our kids and to teach ourselves how to have kai all year round because the majority of our people still won't grow gardens, still don't go and gather fish, um, aren't allowed by law to eat the traditional bird sources that we used to eat. So, yeah, we've got to be very careful in the way we assert these kinds of things and make sure that the kids learn alongside us. That's how I learned, walking alongside my Auntie Pauline, my nanny, um, her sister, and other uncles and aunties that lived in our pa when I was a kid. Um, they never said, hey, come along here, I'm going to teach you this. We had to actually pester them, can I come with you? Hmm. And they would discourage us to test our commitment to what we were about to see and do. And, yeah, a lot of funny stories about those aunties and uncles and just watching them. 
Well, I wonder whether that's a nice natural segue to take a little bit of a break. I want to come back to that COVID situation shortly. But right now we're going to take a waiata break. Uh, ko tēnei waiata, he waiata ka korero tia te whakapapa o te poi. Te kaitito o tēnei waiata ko te morehu tuhua, te kai waiata ko mikairaberi. Whakaroko mai ki tēnei waiata, takawirihanga. Kia ora.
tēnā hoki mai whānau. Before the break, we were discussing with Machu Payne some of the breadth and width of Mahikakai. Machu, you've already told us a little bit about the differences between the Mahikakai and, say, Te Ika Māui, the North Island, and Te Waipanamu. Uh, I guess a little bit around the types of kai, so i.e. titi, mutton birds down in the far south. Um, are there any other logical differences that you could um, tell us about? And I'm not necessarily talking about food or locality, but rather around seasonality and focus. Seasonality and focus, yeah. It's um, it's quite important to know that because we say mahikakai here, other iwi, hapu and whānau don't necessarily describe the practices the same way. And we need to acknowledge that, so I wouldn't say to you, let's go to Ngāti Pro and talk mahikakai, or let's go to Waikato and talk mahikakai, because in those areas, um, like you were saying before, they may not even be described as a concept, it's just a practice. And it's done naturally, consciously, and repeatedly every season. So for us, Titi is a good example of something that occurs here in the south. Um, but Titi used to occur all over the, the North Island as well, and some areas of Titi still exist in the north. Um, it's just not necessarily legal to harvest them <laughs> up there as it is on the Titi Islands. So interestingly, there's an island in Lake Taupo, Motutaiko. Is that sort of something that's similar, or is that very... Is, is it a different name usage, or...? Yeah, I, I don't know too much about Motu Taiko. I've only heard stories about that place. Um, but yeah, the, if that's an example of one, there's others in the Bay of Plenty as mm. well. Okay. Um, there's an old waiata from within Tuhoi, Engari Te Titi, that talks about Titi being in their Takiwara as well. So that's how we know where the Mahikakai once were, if they're not there now. Um, similarly for us here in Tawaiponamu, we still continue to make mokehi. Mokihi are canoes or rafts made out of rope or the bulrushes. And a lot of our place names, um, some of our stories, and a couple of our waiata record mokihi here in Te Waiponamu. And we continue that practice, but what we've also learned is, you know, places like Tuwhare Toa, uh, the east coast of the North Island, and even up into Te Tai Tokero, have memories and traditions of mokihi being made. But they don't necessarily remember... Um, the terminology that went alongside them. So whatever. Well, they may use different words. They may use different words mm. and understand it differently. Because I have seen photos of, um, uh, I mean, and we've seen that in Taranaki around the Raupo Whare. So there's the use of Raupo in that way. We've seen a photo of little islands and bridges of Raupo. So it's, it's, I remember when we went up to Turangi and we were doing this Mokihi workshop. Um, you know, they'd never heard of that term, but once we started making it, there was this remembering that yeah. there was there was something, it was just called something different. Um, I also will be interviewing uh, Jodie Cameron later around the Mokihi, so it's really glad that, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Look, the other kind of differences can be in, like we were saying before, about the species that are available. Mm-hmm. So if you think of uh, Ngāti Hineki Waikato, um, and just over the hill from Kaiawa, and Pukorokoro at Miranda. Um, just in the last month, there's been the arrival of the kuaka, the godwits. And those kuaka land at Pukorokoro. Um, we know from the people in Taitokero 
up in the far north, they also eat the kuaka. Um, we have kuaka down here. Um, not a very strong tradition of eating them, <laughs> because perhaps there were probably other kinds of birds that were a little bit more of a mouthful, but they're no less tasty. Sure. And so um, those are the kinds of things that we look out for and we respect when we go to different iwis takiwa. I must admit, when we were watching the news of the Kuaka landing, and then we happened to have um, some pōhātiti in the whare, so that's, um, well, how would you explain pōhātiti for the, in, in English? Uh, receptacles for mutton birds made from seaweed. There you go. So I was just thinking, looking at these kuaka landing going, I wonder what they would look like in a pōha. So, you know, you, this is this imagery that kind of arrives as soon as you see this this uh, another bird landing and you're like, ooh, mahikukai, and then you're thinking, ooh, pōha. So, you know, it's the it's things like that that make it really interesting. Yeah. You certainly get a lot more kuaka in a pōha than a tete. <laughs> How many do you think you could get in a pōha? Oh, I'll find out one day. <laughs> Maybe we could go up, up to Waikato and, and see whether or not they'll let us harvest some. That could be interesting. Um, I wonder, Machu, whether you could tell us now about whānau mahikakai practices. So we've kind of talked about mahikakai a little bit from the whānau perspective, but how do whānau mahikakai activities contribute to, say, the wider hapū or iwi aspirations? The best example in contemporary times of whānau practice are the Titi Islands. Mm. Um, so these are the islands that are along the coast of Rakiura, Southland, um, down at uh, Stewart Island. So along Stewart Island's coast, but also on little islands that surround um, the entire motu, there are hereditary rights held by whānau, um, that each year representatives of those whānau go back and they harvest titi that the whole country ends up buying um, from the hereditary That's right true. holders. And so the whānau themselves um, have a well-defined process of who can go to the island, um, but only people who papa to those original tipuna who held the rights in that place have an access right. And then only within very strict regulations that are monitored internally um, and along customary lines of things called manu. Manu can mean bird, but on the islands, a manu is a defined area where those who go to the islands, that is their area to harvest birds from within the island itself. And it was a, um, a customary management tool that would allow um, sustainable harvest over the years, and it's proved very effective. So every mutton bird we get, if it's not from Tasmania, comes from one of those islands down there in, in Murihiku. And so that's an example of how Fano regulate mahikakai, they adapt, and they now perpetuate the practice of mahikakai in a contemporary environment. And um, it would be fair to say that, you know, once harvesting is done, there's most certainly, I mean, those buckets go up and down the country, possibly overseas, I don't know, but I think the thing I, I do certainly see is that their um, anticipated, their arrival is anticipated. I know we get... Um, buckets of TT each year to distribute to whānau. So, you know, these buckets are zooming all over the country, which is fantastic. Yeah. So the practice of manu on the islands itself is a microcosm of what our families used to do here in Canterbury. Okay. And so here in Canterbury, we observed a word called waka waka. Hmm. And waka waka were larger geographical boundaries that were held by whānau and hapū 
on the plains and also on Horomaka on Banks Peninsula. And those waka waka were primarily associated with the practice of kaiho kai. Hmm. Kaiho kai was our system of uh, reciprocal uh, gifting of kai that was incumbent on each of our whānau to uphold our end of the bargain. Um, these waka waka on the Canterbury Plains would be dedicated towards the production of kauru, which is the pre-European sugar. And that would involve cutting down, um, at times, acres of cabbage trees that would regrow within a five-year period. And the waka waka would mean you would only harvest a certain area um, for one year's production, and you wouldn't touch that again for another five years to allow the regrowth to occur. Because um, the Canterbury Plains were a huge repository of Mahika Kai mm. resource. Um, sadly, after the 1848 Kemp's purchase, though, and the land conversion to pastoral farming, saw the destruction of a lot of the wetlands and the, the trees were used for that. And um, those resources are no longer available. And the practice of producing kōru at the moment has been relegated to a few key manuscripts. Mm. But part of my challenge and my drive is to rekindle um, the practice from those old manuscripts so we can actually bring it back into the world of the mahi rather than the world of the tuhi, which is the ritual. Sure. Okay. Yeah, so for whānau, um, we still observe the interconnectedness of the waka waka, how we come to become part of an environment, um, regardless of where we live, because whānau would travel tens, sometimes hundreds of kilometres across to Waipaunamu okay. to practise their waka waka. So you touched on kaihokai just, just now and also prior to the Waiata break. Um, kaihokai I saw in action beautifully during COVID. So what were some of the things we saw in Kokorarata around whānau um, coming together to exchange food? I mean, we saw with the pork that um, would come through to the iwi that was distributed. So was there, if you looked at a contemporary way of kaihokai, what, what are some examples that, or an example that you could share? Yeah, um, the first thing we saw was that the acknowledgement that kaiho kai still held a place in our community and that our over-reliance upon the supermarket culture had eroded what it meant to have a kaiho kai culture within our whānau. And so it prompted us to rekindle our māra, even though we were heading into winter. We cleaned out our three hothouses for the winter, replanted vegetables that would actually grow and able to feed families should the food shortage um, get worse over time. We also um, looked to re-establish our taiki, our traditional mussel gardens that we would build in the harbour to store mussels um, to make easier access during the winter. Um, that was thwarted a little bit by the fact that you know we weren't actually allowed to go out and fish <laughs> during yeah. COVID lockdown. So if we were going to do that, there would be a continued resistance against um, the rules that were being put in place. Um, but we saw the aroha, the love associated with the idea of kaiho kai being permeated. Um, a great example was Te Putahitanga, Kita Waipaunamu, mm. the Fana Water Commissioning Agency, mm -hmm. um, kicked into gear immediately and created what they called Fano Packs, uh, which provided for um, sanitary and clean, cleaning products and things that families would need. 
um, for a prolonged lockdown. And these were, you know, tens of thousands of boxes that were prepared and distributed around all of the communities of the South Island um, and distributed out to whānau. And it was really wonderful to see that, you know, our people that work in that organisation were enacting um, the kinds of hospitality that were associated um, with the idea of mahikakai but being put into practice in a different way. Uh, we also had um, examples of pork that was unable to be exported that was redirected from um, different sources and distributed out to our people. And in reciprocation, our people would then offer whatever we had to each other in the communities. Uh, people of other communities were thinking about us and vice versa. And not that it forced a rethinking, but it encouraged us to really rekindle what was fundamental to us in our culture. So I remember when we went immediately into lockdown, um, you know, we went around to all of the fruit trees in Kokoranato and started picking the pears and the peaches. And then um, our poor son spent many a night peeling, cooking, jarring. You know. But what was great was that it was really easy to pass those around to the komato and the whānau that were in the bay. And it was, um, you know, it was just something, I think, in that space, uh, kaihokai was not something that we thought we should do, but it was just so natural. Yeah. It was really about that, as you're saying, that aroha and that manaki, to look out for all of our neighbours and to be able to pass food around. And, and again, we'd turn around and there'd be like a big basket of watercress from, you know, the Dakin whānau, and then we were, you know, it would have been nice to have the 16 chickens then, but never mind, we could have been distributing eggs. <laughs> we got them now. We got them now. Just in case we go into lockdown again, whānau. <laughs> There are eggs and kakarata. But that is such a natural process, I guess. It's uh, a beautiful part of our cultures. And, and, and no doubt other cultures have something similar. Yeah, I mean, the, the real retrospective thing is, uh, you know, would we have done those things with our boys had COVID not occurred? No. Yeah. <laughs> Just going to be honest. So it, was, it was a wonderful time, an it's, enforced time to actually pass on knowledge yes. um, out of necessity rather than out of novelty. Yeah. And I totally our boys agree. really appreciated, I think, learning those skills. And I think it was that, that lockdown that kind of reminded us that this was an easy thing to do, a good thing to do. And um, now that we have 16 chickens, we do it every week. But <laughs> it, is, it is this real um, revitalising of, of something that we know is natural, but then we kind of bring it back into the today, which is really cool. So we're going to take another waiata break now. Um, and so this next waiata talks about the planting time for kumara and te waipanamu. And although a number of non-Māori writers have argued that it is too cold to grow kumara in the South Island, many mahikakai practitioners, including a South Matu, have consistently proven this to be wrong. The kupu for this waiata was sourced from Ruapuke Island, called Jasmine Dallas, Jody Cameron Rato, called Matu Payne, Kakai Waiata, or Manutiria, Whakaroko Mai. Manutiria is an old waiata. It talks of the time Maui followed his father to the underworld. It also talks of the right time to plant the kumara. Manutiria, Manutiria, Manu Erohia, Kitepoho, Teraka, Kata, Rere, Kata, Iteruhi, Etawe, Koya, 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 
Well, welcome back again, and thank you, Machu, for coming in to talk to us today. Um, I think one of the things I would have liked to have done is to um, have a really good discussion around that waiata manutiria. So instead, I'm going to invite you back to have a much longer discussion around um, how the three of you came to find those kupu, those words for that waiata, how you brought the rangi together, and how it went from this nice waiata that was on one of the ngaitahu um, tapes to now being a waiata that actually is sung right across to Waipanamu. So, um, listen, I want to thank you for coming in for this great discussion and our very first uh, interview for the Mahikakai Narratives. And um, I really appreciate the time that you've taken today. Did you want to say any last words before we Well, te, te nā hoki koe. Um, it's been a, a great start to an interview. It's, um, it's really important, I think, to have these discussions around Mahikakai and just have an open dialogue because there's so many different opinions on how and why we should be observing Mahikakai here in um, Christchurch, in Te Waipaunamu, across the whole country, across indigenous nations as well. Um, food sovereignty, food security, all of these things are directly connected to Mahikakai. I think one of the things that I've um, became um, even more apparent to is you know, once we kind of went into our te reo space and our tikanga space, that that mahikakai space that actually informs our language and our tikanga sometimes gets set out to the side. So we focus very much on the protocols in the marae and the protocols of how we learn our language. But there are many, many words that, as you were saying, manukuia, um, that actually inform why those those names are there, and they're very steeped in our in mahikakai practice. So um, this program was really about being able to bring all of those narratives together and have some great discussions around why and how it sits within our culture. So um, I've really appreciated your time today. And I've appreciated yours too. Keep up the good work, and I look forward to having further kōrero with you in the future. Fantastic. Well, that's our program for today, and thank you for joining us on this journey of sharing and discovering Mahikukai narratives. The podcast can be found at Plains FM website, www.plainsfm.org.nz, and search Mahikukai narratives. Tēnā tātou.